0: What's up everybody, this is Healing Intentions and I'm your host, Dr. Adrian Mamedi. This podcast is about natural health and wellness, mental health, cannabis, psychedelics, philosophy, and spirituality. Today my guest is Dr. Kareem Kandil. As a researcher of medical cannabis and botanical medicine for the past decade, Dr. Kandil combines his educational background and passion for botanical medicine, focusing on industrial hemp-derived cannabinoids. Dr. Candile began his journey into medicine as an emergency medical scribe in Houston, working along ER physicians during the peak of the H1N1 swine flu pandemic of 2009. During that time, he first began his research into the safety and efficacy of medical cannabis, as well as looking at vaccine injuries following the rushed pandemic vaccine. In 2011, he then went on to commence his medical studies at Ross University School of Medicine in Dominica, West Indies, known as the Nature Island of the Caribbean. In 2012, he did his first Grand Rounds presentation on the therapeutic potential of cannabinoids. During his clinical rotations at various hospital sites around the U.S., he researched the history of medicine in the U.S. as well as the benefits of food, vitamins, minerals, and botanicals in healing. After graduating with his medical degree in 2015, he went on to work in telemedicine for the insurance industry while shadowing a holistic medical physician who focused on treating autoimmune chronic disease conditions with lifestyle interventions. He then enrolled in the naturopathic medicine program at National University of Health Sciences in 2016, graduating as salutatorian in August of 2018 with his doctor of naturopathic medicine. While it enrolled at NUHS, Dr. Candiel did several grand round presentations on the therapeutic uses of cannabinoids, emphasizing hemp-derived CBD. After graduating, Dr. Candiel co-founded a line of CBD supplements under Better Living Botanicals. With his extensive background studying cannabis, Dr. Candiel has also grown premium high CBD industrial hemp genetics with Wisconsin Amish farmers, authored a module for the NDNR Integrative Cannabis course, and lectured at the Texas Hemp Convention. Let's get started. All right, welcome everybody. This is another episode of Healing Intentions. This is your host, Dr. Adrienne Mimetti. And today I have one of my very best friends, uh, met uh, Dr. Kareem Candil here. Um, at orientation of school he was right behind me in line and we started talking and we hit it off from the very beginning and uh, we've gone through some some amazing adventures and learned a whole lot about each other and about cannabis and hemp and and he's educated me a whole bunch on the topic of today which is vaccines and so I said hey man it's time for us to record this episode with your extensive encyclopedic type knowledge on this topic and many others um, I said it's time for for our episode so welcome to the show man really excited to have you and uh, just go ahead and get started and let us know you know your background and 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 what brought you here today.
1: Thank you very much Adrian Uh, it's a pleasure been looking forward to joining your podcast here for a while so I'm Glad uh, we finally get to connect and uh, have this discussion mm-hmm. um, just to kind of give my background. So uh, my background of study um, has always been in the sciences. So I majored in biological sciences with a focus on microbiology, molecular biology, and a minor in chemistry. Um, I'd done some research uh, previously uh, in the Department of Microbiology um, and Uh, From there, basically had continued with my pre-medical studies and began to work as an emergency medical scribe, uh, Houston, Texas, working in the ER alongside physicians and had begun when I was there in 2009 and was present during the peak of the H1N1 uh, swine flu uh, epidemic. Mm. And that was kind of one of my first sort of forays into trying to understand the uh, vaccine paradigm. So I had begun my studies at that time as well um, into medical cannabis, which initially I had known about some of its therapeutic uh, properties for symptom relief in uh, cancer and AIDS patients, but had also started to come into some of the. Initial research suggesting that cannabis actually had some of its own unique anti-cancer properties, as well as a slew of other um, anti-inflammatory properties that could be used in a variety of medical conditions. Uh And it was just during this period uh, of the H1N1 pandemic and the emergence of a very fast-tracked vaccine, the uh, pandermics, that that sort of inner triggers like something seems a little bit off here. At the time I had the uh, you know, CDC immunization schedule in front of me, but never was able to really make sense of why you know, certain vaccines were given at the rate they were, the kind of increases in all the different combinations. and seeing just this kind of increase in not only the childhood vaccination schedule, but a sort of change and evolution in terms of even the adult vaccination schedule Mm. regarding say the annual influenza vaccine, which was something that was typically more of a, we highly recommend this to vulnerable populations, the elderly and recommend you get it to, we really recommend you get it to if you're a healthcare worker or medical student, you need to have it. If you want to even be able to work or continue your studies Mm. and Uh, I was very fortunate that prior to starting, uh, you know, medical school at Ross University School of Medicine, I had the opportunity to do a medical education review program in Miami with some uh, phenomenal uh, doctors um, in uh, microbiology, immunology, as well as physiology. And, you know, this was kind of what became the, the foundation of my understanding going into you know, medical school at Ross University uh, in Dominica, the nature island of the Caribbean, uh-huh. uh, which further started to expand my interest in, you know, natural medicine, uh, the use of plants as medicine, the use of other therapeutics as medicine, you know, hydrotherapy, uh, before I even know knew it was called hydrotherapy. And that just kind of one uh, thing sort of, you know, op- led to another And you start to kind of, you know, get a different view and understanding and disillusionment from your, you know, early medical training that's focused on your basic sciences where you feel like, yes, I get to step into this role of doctor as teacher and explain to patients, you know, the pathophysiology, what's going on in their body and why they need to take this medication or make, you know, this type of lifestyle modification. And, started to kind of see once you get into the clinical side of things, it became a lot more of a top-down algorithm-based approach to practice that prioritized a certain type of efficiency in quickly going in, assessing the patient, garnering whatever relevant history you could, checking all the boxes, getting your diagnostics done, and starting your treatment protocols. Uh, mm-hmm. And you know, it was here that, again, I started, you know, listening to patients a bit more because, again, as a medical student, when you're doing your clinical rotations, you actually have a, a more uh, uh, extended opportunity to spend time with patients and actually get, you know, more of the in-depth history, whereas, you know, as the resident, you kind of have to be a lot more quick and succinct in, in getting that.
0: Right. And so
1: it was then I started noticing a few trends, a number of, you know, patients who were coming in hospitalized for pneumonia saying like, yeah, I got my flu shot. Then I, you know, got sick shortly after. And so this is all anecdotal, but it's important to understand when we talk about, you know, science and and these terms will be thrown around like anecdotal. And that just simply means that that's an experience that you saw as a physician, as a patient, et cetera, you know, versus what we kind of consider the quote unquote gold standard of, you know um you know scientific uh understanding the you know placebo controlled randomized controlled trial which again Mm -hmm. has a you know high statistical power for looking at is there a you know association um between an intervention and outcomes but at the same time is has limitations in terms of its ability to be implemented its practicality and and assessment for some of these other things so right right Yeah, and so it was during my time doing my clinical rotations, I uh, came across a book written in the 80s by Eustace Mullins called Murder by Injection that really kind of went into the entire history of medical education, you know, um, in this country and abroad over the last couple of centuries and the evolution of the various schools of medicine, you know, the uh, dominant, you know, allopathic school of medicine. Uh, allopathic means you know um, you know other disease. and so it's based on a principle of countering the disease, you know by trying to antagonize that process, you know mm-hmm. uh, you know, versus homeopathic, which is based on the principle of similars, looking at you know uh, treating disease by, you know essentially uh, stimulating the person in the direction of cure by a similar type of process as is Present in the disease, so these mm-hmm. are essentially kind of at, at, at the cusp of these competing viewpoints. And in in studying that, you come to understand the influence of various historic figures, the funding that plays a very big role uh, in terms of how policy is shaped. Uh, yeah. And you know, before we kind of go in deeper, you know, I think that you know we, we live in an era that's that's kind of very hostile to you know, any type of narrative or understanding that differs from the repeated norms as stated through your main corporate media outlets. Right. And, you know, the term, you know, pejorative conspiracy theorist, you know, is oftentimes, you know, thrown around, you know, very, you know, laxly in a way to kind of disparage. even. Yeah. Yeah. without even looking at the arguments or the merits of the arguments or investigating, but flat out um, outright shutting down any type of discussion and investigation often prefaced with the, you know, central dogma of modern scientists the science is settled, trust the (laughs) experts. Right. And, uh, and, and this, this has a number of issues when you really kind of, again, I've had a chance to look at how money influences policy across the board, you know, whether it be medicine, you know, governance in general, our food industry, you know, agricultural industry, which again plays and plays a very critical role in, you know, much of what we've seen in terms of public health over the last century, especially. And, you know, it, it was through that process. It was, you know, that I began to, to really start looking with a critical eye, coming across other studies, uh, you know, Green Med Info and some of these other, you know, resources that really started to, you know, open my eyes to, you know, some of the shortcomings in the very kind of, you know, sort of box, you know, cookie cutter approach to medicine versus what was more of a individualized art and practice of Medicine mm-hmm. that looks at okay, we understand that you know maybe statistically speaking this is the go-to treatment for the population, but every individual is different. And you have to based on that individual assess okay, what's you know higher risk you know for them, what's better, and you know trying things that may not necessarily work for one individual to see and when we come to do this we're we're looking at two kinds of main uh, aspects um, in medicine, you know we're looking at safety and efficacy. And again, as physicians, you know, the the cornerstone of the Hippocratic oath, you know, primum non ser, first do no harm. We first want to look at okay, what can we do first that seems to have, you know, the least amount of harm and then we look at okay, you know, what seems to be the most effective. Um, you know, so we can have a therapeutic that may not be super effective, but it's fairly safe, and so we might try it because the risk of an adverse outcome is low. Versus, mm. say, a more powerful drug that may have a certain, you know, higher clinical efficacy, but it comes along with it a lot of concerns for safety. So right, right. Th- this is really kind of the balancing act of medicine. Um, and that's one thing that really kind of gives naturopathic medicine. I think it's, it's real competitive edge.
0: Yeah. So uh, what was your path to naturopathic medicine then exactly? How would you describe that?
1: Um, it, it, it's been a journey and it's, it's, it's an ongoing journey uh but i would say that there was something in naturopathic medicine that satisfied both my soul and my intellect in terms mm. of its approach to uh healthcare and healing mm. and so it was while i was in medical school uh, as a medical doctor um in training I had never heard of a naturopathic doctor in my life. Mm-hmm. Even though ironically, I came to find out after I'd graduated later on that the dean of my medical school at the time was actually a naturopathic doctor, a Bastier graduate, you know, wow. uh, Dr. That's Raskins who, who passed away a number of years ago. Mm. Um, and so this, you, know, I didn't really actually learn about naturopathic medicine until after I had graduated while I was uh, working. Uh, in the telemedicine industry for the insurance companies and kind of saw firsthand how, despite my clinical understanding and interaction with these patients on the phone, how certain patients were, you know, with numerous comorbidities and whatnot, were kind of still making through the pre-approval process, but other patients were getting flat out denied just because a physician at some point had offered them an experimental treatment, whether they had taken it or not, but now that's on their permanent record and that now completely disqualified them from getting certain types of supplemental insurance. So seeing how that side of medicine was very much controlled by non, you know, clinical business people and how clinical judgment really, unfortunately played a, plays a kind of a, a, a small kind of role in that. And it becomes this sort of this kind of revolving door between the insurance industry, the pharmaceutical industry, and the various, you know, uh, medical uh, specialty-related boards, in mm-hmm. terms of determining what are the standards of care, what's going to be compensated, and you know how that process, you know, continues to evolve. So what I'm
0: hearing you say is the difference between like actual medicine and about you know real health and curing versus is it efficient? Is it profitable? Is it, you know, is it a good long going business model? Like that's kind of the, the conundrum that's being, that's, you know, happening in medicine. And it's like, you realize that, what I realize is that it could be both, but if it's done the right way, you know, not in this way, that it's just about keeping people, you know, on, on pharmaceuticals and just in and out of the system, Uh, you know, that's not helping anybody, but the insurance and pharmaceutical companies.
1: Exactly. So I mean, this is where again, we see differences and kind of where the relative strengths and the relative kind of shortcomings of uh, modern conventional medicine tends to be so Mm -hmm. when it comes to say acute care, trauma care, uh, and whatnot, when it comes to given medications, it's typically relatively straightforward, like this is the period of time, we're going to give you antibiotics, because we don't want to give you too much that, you know, causes damage. We don't want to give you too little that it's not effective and you start having potential resistance. Uh, You know, seeing the use of that when people are having, you know, emergency, you know, heart arrhythmias, um, elevated blood pressure and whatnot. And so there's definitely a a respect and a recognition that there's, there's a time and place for everything. And, you know, this isn't to kind of go out and throw out the baby with the bathwater and say that, you know, all of quote unquote, evidence-based medicine is is invalid because there, there are profit motives here. Mm-hmm. Um, however, right. I think it just requires a an individualized kind of nuanced look and approach to everyone. And again, you know, going back to this experience with, you know, seeing the, the direction and that push towards a, a more aggressive coercion towards any type of treatment or policy that that should Set off a alarm bell, since again, you know, mm. a very sacred, you know, mainstay of the physician-patient relationship is the principle of informed consent. You know, and yeah. that you know, patients should be notified to the best of their ability. What are the relative benefits, risks, alternatives to treatment, and what happens if you do nothing? And we oftentimes talk about you know, risk and benefit. There is oftentimes we we tend to get focus on what's known as relative risk reduction, which, you know, statistically is looking at, okay, uh, you know, compared to the intervention trial, uh, you know, compared to, you know, when you have, uh, you know, one group versus another, relative to each other, what's that percent reduction in, say, risk or symptoms, versus absolute risk reduction, which looks at, okay, overall, what is your overall risk of getting something? And what's your overall risk of getting something or you know, having an adverse outcome if you don't receive the treatment. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, th- this is, you know, of course, of importance, especially when we're talking about the, you know, current, you know, uh, ongoing situation around, a, you know, particular virus that it's almost <laughs> too controversial to mention its name.
0: Right. Like Voldemort yeah. from Harry Potter. Almost. <laughs> <laughs> Al- almost, you know, uh,
1: <laughs> But you yeah. know it's it, it's just the vi- again, the, you know, the
0: virus flavor of the moment, man, you know, pick, you know a couple of years it, it ago definitely it was is. Eka, and a few years before that it was h1 n one right where you were what you were in and, and, and
1: that that is true, and definitely in the case of h one n one, you know there was this kind of this this type of you know panic that was generated that had international you know global implications on everything Uh from travel to policy and, you know, even agriculture in Egypt, they had, you know, put in place at the time, uh, you know, thermometer scanners at airports, they did a culling of like so many pigs in the country fearing, again, you know, this is called the swine flu. Therefore, you know, pigs are the, are are the cause. And, you know, in the U S at the time I was working in the ER, as I'd mentioned, uh, we saw this massive influx of patients who were, you know, concerned, you know, from any type of, you know, cough or flu symptoms. And uh-huh. I remember we tested hundreds and hundreds of patients and of those hundreds and th- on hundreds of patients, you know, only a handful came back with any type of seropositivity for influenza A or B. Mm. And once they were positive, we went ahead and basically prescribed, you know, Tamiflu or Merlenza, um, which were, again, the already available um, antivirals at the time intended for influenza. Uh-huh. Uh, but what I also noticed is that there wasn't any follow-up to be like, okay, are we going to do any sort of serology to say, okay, is this H1N1, or is this just one of the numerous circulating annual strains of influenza that are constantly in flux and constantly in change and constantly evolving, as all microbes constantly are doing. Right. And. And so, to me, that that demonstrated a a certain lack of you know that sort of scrutiny and integrity for being yeah, able yeah like validity.
0: To, it, it's like, is it real? It, is this is this well, actually it, about the it, you know?
1: It, the it can actually be real, but you know, with with any type of situation, you know, when we start to get a little bit weary about reporting outcomes because those conclusions from those outcomes might potentially challenge a mainstay of, of prevention or treatment, we we do ourselves a disservice rather than say, okay, let's objectively look at the data, let's take it all in, and then try to assess and see what type of relationships are there, who yep. seems to be at best risk of benefiting, and who seems to be I mean, you know, at the greatest risk of actually, you know, having an adverse, you know, outcome. An event, you go. There so you that go. we can potentially shield that population, or at least be aware of, or you know, more cognizant in looking for you know adverse events in that particularly susceptible population.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, speaking of that, why don't we go back to the basics a bit uh, about um, just you know immunology and like just break that down, just at a you know nutshell. I know that's <laughs> a whole podcast and a whole you know many many. <sighs> you know semesters and a whole phd but mm-hmm. you know uh just the basics of innate and adaptive immunity and just you know your your version of that since you you know you've learned a little bit extra about immunology
1: yeah absolutely so when we talk about you know the you know immune system the the very main arm the primary arm that deals with 80 plus percent of any type of pathogens is what's known as your innate immune system and you know, these innate, you know, aspects of immune system first starts with just the basics of our body. So our barriers to entry, like the walls that exist. So our skin, our mucous membranes, you know, the tight junctions between cells within our gut, um, as well as some of the other types of things like, you know, our tears, our saliva, sneezing, coughing, vomiting, all of these approaches our body will kind of use to discharge or get rid of something. It doesn't seem very you know happy with in addition to all mm-hmm. these different types of enzymes that are secreted you know within our stomach you know from our tears um as well as you know the you know white blood cells that are considered part of that you know innate immune system so these are your macrophages which are the ones that tend to engulf your pathogens you know your dendritic cells which are you know the ones that kind of take these uh you know patterns from pathogens and present them to other white blood cells, um, are neutrophils, which are responsible for dealing with most of your bacterial infection, uh, as well as, you know, the actual use of cytokines, which are these chemical mediators that are used to kind of signal and attract other uh, types of specialized white blood cells. Mm-hmm. And then finally, kind of one of my favorite, you know, um, uh, parts of the innate immune system, natural killer cells, the ones I kind of mm-hmm. think of as like the ninjas of the immune system, you know, they, yeah. uh, you know, have the ability to, you know, selectively go after, you know, virally infected cells as well as cancer cells and play an important role in that, you know, immune homeostasis in your body, uh, to kind of keep in check, you know, those cells that are, you know, we're constantly creating cells that are precancerous, and our immune system usually plays that role of keeping it in check. Now, uh, our innate immune system, again, is what plays that primary role and is what activates our adaptive immune system. And our adaptive immune system, um, is, you know, uses the white blood cells that are known as lymphocytes, um, and plasma cells. So these are your B cells, which mature in the bone marrow, your T cells that mature in the thymus. Mm-hmm. And each of these cells has their own kind of special roles that allows them to basically deal with a particular, uh, you know, Specific type of pathogen that your body has encountered, and allows it to generate a you know long-lasting immune response. And mm-hmm. this whole process of activation of these arms of the immune system is what's known as inflammation. And so, inflammation is definitely the buzzword du jour when it comes to looking at chronic disease process. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we need to, as such, you know, think of you know, these chronic diseases from a immunological perspective and understand, okay, what's ideal kind of signaling and what happens when that tends to kind of go awry. So ideally, you know, if again, you know, your initial innate immune system does not, you know, prevent a pathogen from first taking hold, your adaptive immune system starts to now get activated, which then allows the, you know, maturation of, your C D eight T cells, which basically will kill virally infected cells, uh, as well as your C D4 T cells that now uh, are or your T helper cells that play a role in, you know, activating that sort of antibody response. Uh-huh. And, you know, that anti, you know, so that response, you know, includes, you know, the production of antibodies. And again, our body has different types of antibodies, um, also called immunoglobulins or Ig. And, you know, the first one that we have when we're dealing with, you know, any type of, you know, acute infection are your IgMs, Um, you know, they're larger complexes. Uh, And then you have your IgGs, and these are the main immunoglobulins that we tend to think of the main antibodies that have to deal with, you know, long-term chronic immunity. And these can be elevated in the case of, you know, kind of long-term with a chronic viral infection, um, you know, or autoimmune disease. And... Um, and then of course we have our IGAs, which are the main immunoglobulins that line our mucosal membranes that play an important role in neutralizing pathogens and is present in that, you know, breast milk colostrum, which mm-hmm. is very critical to mm-hmm. basically supporting, you know, an infant's, uh, immune system. Yep. And then we have, you know, IGE, which plays that role in terms of allergies. And again, you know, um, everyone tends to have a slightly different, you know, spectrum of how those are expressed.
0: Very nice. Yeah. Very good summary. Um, So, so now how does this tie into kind of like, let's go into the topic of vaccines and vaccination immunization, you know, Mm -hmm. like there's a long history of all of that. Mm -hmm. Um, Where does it all begin and and how would you, how do you think it came to, you know, modern day, obviously, (laughs) Once again, very deep topic we could go for hours and hours and hours, uh, but just in, in a brief, you know, summary version. Oh yeah, definitely. So, uh, you know, the term vaccine, you know, comes from
1: vaccinia, which, you know, Latin for, you know, certain type of, you know, for cow. Um, Cause mm. you know, the, the first vaccine, you know, which was the smallpox vaccine that was, you know, developed by Edward Jenner in 1798, uh, was developed, you know, because the story goes that, you know, of course, at the time, smallpox was a lot more, you know, rampant and was a leading cause of infectious disease death globally. And what, you know, Jenna, I noticed is that, you know, it seemed that, you know, a lot of these milkmaids, you know, who had been, you know, dealing, you know, who'd been milking cows. Um, you know, who had the cowpox, of vaccine mm-hmm. seemed to not get sick with, you know, the smallpox virus. Wow. So basically, you know, that sort of, you know, you know, influenced him to consider, okay, let's see what happens here. So they actually took some pus from these cows, uh, you know, cowpox, uh, where wow. basically you had the, the viral kind of lesion being expressed on the skin and, you know, injected that as a serum in order to generate a response to that, since it seemed that, again, you know, the um, the cowpox itself would not typically infect humans, you know, it was just limited to cows that were typically in, you know, these kind of closed off indoor type of, um, you know, farming operations at the time, mm-hmm. um, you know, and basically uh, by being able to use something that did not theoretically infect humans, you know, it was the thought that, okay, here we can go ahead and prevent this far more serious disease of uh, smallpox. And so that's basically how the whole process of vaccines began. The the history, you know, thereafter tends to kind of get a little bit wishy-washy depending on where you're looking uh, in terms of your data. But Mm -hmm. if we look at, you know the data for a number of you know both infectious diseases and you know non-infectious diseases um that were you know pretty that had higher mortality rates you know at the beginning of you know at the turn of the, uh, you know 20th century you know we find that there had been a precipitous decline you know that had began in much of this disease incidence. And it's important, again, you know, keep in context history, and history of what was happening, you know, at that time, globally, you know, during this industrial revolution, uh, and a period where oftentimes, you know, as people were moving to cities, which were very crowded, very filthy, uh, you didn't really have uh, appropriate plumbing, you had a lot of, you know, noxious, you know, heavy metals and different mm-hmm. You know toxins that were present in the water supply and the air from you know burning of coal or um, you know and whatnot, and so th- this created a situation where people's health was less than optimal. At the same time, you know much of the food supply tended to be very much tainted. You know where people would use you know all kinds of chemicals, formaldehyde or whatnot, to extend the the shelf life of different foods, and of course this you know resulted in instances of people having increase in stomach cancer, whatnot. So, so we see that, you know, generally speaking, you know, as people's quality of life was, you know, very much poor, you know, their, you know, their, their overall lifespans their overall mortality, you know, ended up being, you know, an issue that was compromised. And so, you know, you know, again, so when it, when it comes to, you know, how a vaccine works. Yeah. The, the process is, you know, there's a number of different ways that a vaccine traditionally has been created and, you know, versus some of the, the more modern vaccines, the mRNA platform uh-huh. and how that works. So yep. pr- traditionally, you know, um, you know, from the crude, you know, sort of Jenner, you know, cowpox plus vaccine moving forward, uh, scientists would oftentimes uh, attempt to, you know, either heat kill or chemically kill you know, but these viruses or uh, bacteria, you know, uh, in order to prevent them from causing that disease, or they might take, say, a part of it, you know, say proteins that are present, you know, in its, you know, um, you know, outer capsid, and use that in order to generate an immune response. So this is what we consider or call our you know, classic vaccines. Um, mm-hmm. and, and sometimes these vaccines, you know, you know, the more modern ones would oftentimes, you know, take say a particular pathogen such as measles or mumps. And in order to attenuate it, it might pass it through a different type of tissue, say chicken, egg tissue, or, you know, some type of mouse, uh, nerve tissue or, you know, dog kidney cells. I mean, they can be, cause you have to, uh, for viruses again, versus bacteria, Bacteria can be cultured on, you know, different types of growth media. Viruses need some kind of living host in order for them to be able to make the proteins and the uh, nucleic acids that code for their proteins in them. And so we went from, you know, basically, again, you know, it was the kind of the standard of creating vaccines. And, you know, in addition to the actual, you know, pathogen, you know, the actual disease causing agent or an antigen from it, which is basically you know, a, a complex that basically can be recognized by the immune system, you know, by, by injecting it into the body, your, you know, uh, cells, your immune cells your dendritic cells that are in the area, you know, sense an alarm of some born invader. And Mm -hmm. they basically, you know, release those cytokines that activates the adaptive arm of the immune system. Mm -hmm. But you've, again, like I said, completely bypassed that innate immune system. And so, this is where, you know, the issue of, okay, you know, the immunity that's generated, you know, what does that consist of? Uh, Part of that is definitely the antibody response. And so we can Mm -hmm. look at that serologically by, you know, tracking a person's, you know, IgG titers to a particular, you know, vaccine or to a pathogen, which can indicate that they have been vaccinated, or it can indicate that they've had the infection and that they've cleared it, you know. Mm -hmm. Um, And again, those titers will, stay elevated for a while, as long as the, you know, the more recently you've been exposed to the pathogen. Uh, but over time, those will kind of go down. Usually takes about seven days to start producing, you know, those, those first few, um, you know, antibodies. And hence, you know, one of the reasons when they're doing these studies, you know, they start to look at, okay, the efficacy after seven days, once an immune response can be generated. Uh, mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: and so, um, uh, as mentioned, you know, you have these antibodies that are, you know, generated, but we also have these things called memory cells that are generated. And so Mm -hmm. if, again, the body senses, it hasn't come in contact, you know, with, you know, a particular pathogen for a while, you know, those antibody levels, you know, those proteins will eventually start to decline in number, you know, and you then have your memory cells that can be reactivated, you know, in the lymph nodes and other lymphoid tissue and produce more antibodies. If, you know, the immune system you know comes across that pathogen again in the future
0: (laughs) which is so miraculous by the way isn't it like just the whole design of that oh the the design
1: we we still haven't even scratched the surface of it and again you know we you know the the understanding you know theoretical as as it may be i think you know may have been a a useful framework of sorts in terms of trying to understand it but of course Mm -hmm. it's it's far more complex far more nuanced and Mm you know, the, the balance between the pro-inflammatory versus the kind of anti-inflammatory side and the kind of like, okay, we've dealt with this disease. We can calm down now. Yep. We're good. Now, yep. if we're, you know, kind of shooting forward to now this issue with COVID, which again, you know. Right. Even though about I about
0: mRNA, defi- bro. It's a big, hotly debated topic. Now. Okay.
1: Well, so mRNA vaccines. Okay, so this specifically refers to the <laughs> Pfizer Uh, you know, and and biotech and the uh, Moderna, um, you know, platform for the vaccine. So the mRNA vaccine, oftentimes it's been touted as, okay, it's natural. It's a natural way to get your body to make immunity. Uh, However, it's really not. So RNA, again, you know, ribonucleic acid is, you know. Uh, It plays an important role in terms of the, you know, production of proteins in the body, you know, so it's basically, it's the template for which you start to, you know, assemble your amino acids and, you know, typically tends to stay within the cell because outside of the cell, you know, RNA tends to get quickly degraded, you know, Um, throughout the air, we have all kinds of things that will even break down that RNA. And so that's the reason why viruses have this capsid, this coating. So in order to protect their genetic material from being degraded until they can get into the body. Mm -hmm. And so the way that, again, this particular virus, the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is a coronavirus, and uh, coronaviruses are a RNA virus uh, envelope. So, again, they have a, you know, particular, uh, you know, protein kind of shell to to protect the inner uh, RNA, uh, basically, you know, needs to bind to your body via receptors. Um, And so on the virus of this coronavirus, you have what's known as the spike protein complex. This spike protein complex, you know, locks into what's known as our ACE2 receptor. And the ACE2 receptor, again, is present, you know, throughout different parts of the body, throughout the GI tract, the uh, testes, uh, placenta, uh, as well as the heart. Um, and again, you know, plays its role as well when it comes to inflammation um, and kind of, you know, balancing out the effects of, you know, the ACE1 receptor. So uh, what ends up happening essentially is, you know, this, you know, virus, you know, gets into the cell by locking into uh, the ACE2 receptor. And so, you know, scientists basically use that as their kind of target for, okay, we're going to generate an immune response to this protein. Now there's a few different ways you can do that. Mm -hmm. So you have companies, for example, like, you know, Johnson, Johnson, AstraZeneca, what they do is they have a recombinant, uh, you know, DNA virus and adenovirus. Um, and, And again, these, these terms, you know, coronavirus, adenoviruses, this has to do with the family of viruses. And just to put into perspective, you know, the, the common cold, you know, the vast majority of those is going to be caused by rhinoviruses, followed by coronaviruses, followed by adenoviruses. Mm-hmm. And so these are viruses that typically have, you know, a large amount of mutations. And hence, you know, one of the reasons why, historically speaking, you know, the talk about making, uh, you know, a vaccination towards, say, the common cold, you know, has been unsuccessful. Now, mm-hmm. the first time we kind of saw this, you know, this issue around kind of a, you know, pandemic, you know, you know, or epidemic type strain of coronavirus, you know, goes back to the original, you know, SARS coronavirus outbreak in China a couple of decades ago. And, you know, it was during that period that, you know, some of the initial studies weren't attempted at trying to generate, you know, a vaccine for it. But with, you know, both that and, you know, other vaccines, there were, there were a number of issues in trying to generate, Uh, that immune response, you know, because of a phenomenon known as antibody dependent enhancement. Mm. So each virus, again, you know, each class of virus acts a little bit differently, tends to kind of stimulate or provoke different parts of the immune system. And with some viruses, they can actually use the antibody component of that sort of adaptive immune arm to actually bypass surveillance. So once you know, a virus you know, starts to bind in, it undergoes a shape change. And when the antibodies bind you know, these types of coronaviruses as well as you know, certain other viruses, you can have a shape change that now basically kind of allows the virus to go into stealth mode. Mm-hmm. And now the thing that you were trying to target the virus for is no longer there when we look at, okay, the mRNA vaccine, the Pfizer one, okay, they say, okay, it works naturally with your body. So what this vaccine consists of is known as a chimeric polynucleotide. So Mm -hmm. that in and of itself is not what you consider to be natural, because what you're doing is you're essentially taking, you know, and creating an artificial RNA strand, okay, that has to be able to withstand the degradation that you would normally have, you know, anytime RNA just kind of boom is entering, floating around your body's like, no, we're not going to need this, going to chop it up, recycle it, you know, using endonucleases. And, mm-hmm. you know, in this case, again, they use a number of different methods, uh, in order to be able to, you know, create this, you know, spike, you know, protein in your cells. And, you know, by basically, you know, using, you know, instead of the typical, you know, uh, base nucleotides mm-hmm. that are used in RNA, you know, guanine, adenine, cytosine, and uracil, um, I- instead of, you know, uracil, uses a- and its accompanying nucleoside uridine, it uses what's known as a, a methyl, uh, you know, pseudouridine, which wow. basically allows additional kind of expression, okay, and signaling to your body of, hey, let's make more of this protein here of interest, Mm -hmm. you know, and allows it to, you know, pass into the body, you know, less degraded because of that. But again, even to kind of get that mRNA into the body in the first place, you have to kind of use, kind of chop shop a number of different components in order to basically allow it to enter into the body. Oh, that
0: doesn't sound good.
1: Uh, no, uh, (laughs) potentially, potentially not, you know, because, you know, um, you know, me. Chop,
0: chop, chop, chop of ingredients going into my body. Let me sign up for that. Oh, yeah, so, here we go. We're about to get controversial here, folks.
1: <laughs> I, I think we're, we, we, we've are we already kind of gotten there. But, you know. Yeah. Um, so,
0: so, so back to real quick, back to I want to make sure that, or are you still talking about mRNA? You want to finish that out and then go back to talk about the history of disease and in, incidents and in vaccines and just kind of like how effective they've really been. You know, a lot of people are like, oh, well, with polio and stuff you know like mm-hmm. like i'm assuming that's what you mean by that so you know just get into that a bit but if you're finished with mrna first
1: um yeah so okay so yeah so i mean this is you know basically the way that the you know the that the antibodies are supposed to be generated so your body basically you know you get this mrna you know into your cell and that basically causes the, you know, stimulates the production of this spike protein complex, you know, uh, in its pre-fusion form, uh, you know, by your body's cells. Once that starts to occur, these, uh, and these proteins are initially expressed on the surface of the cells, but, you know, Pfizer's own data that looks at biodistribution shows that this protein can then be distributed throughout the body. And since, again, it is that, you know, protein that's designed to kind of lock into the ACE2 receptor, the uh-huh. protein in and of itself is capable of generating much of the same symptoms of, you know, the SARS-CoV-2 virus. So, right. you know, we're told that like you can't get the coronavirus from the actual vaccine because there is no active uh, virus in it. And that is true. There's no active, you know, viral, uh, you, know, um, material. you know, active actual, you know, viral genetic material. There's no replicable virus within that. And even the, you know, the viruses that are used for the AstraZeneca, Johnson Johnson, these are supposed to not be able to replicate. Again, supposed to, but as we say, you know, nature bats last. Uh, mm-hmm. But, you know, this protein in and of itself is, you know, responsible for a lot of what we actually see of the, you know, clinical manifestations you know of covid including that increased hemorrhage risk you know which kind of ties into you know what the treatment strategies have been for you know that kind of severe manifestation of covid because you know Mm -hmm. it is real and people do get sick people do die and you know we don't want people to be under the impression that nothing is going on and everything's a complete hoax and everything that's happening is just due to emf from this or that like no uh and again, even when it comes to understanding the, the theories and fundamentals of microbiology, there, there's still a lot of nuance. We're still trying to understand in terms of, you know, what degree of, you know, you know, these microorganisms is, you know, caused by the actual microorganism itself versus the actual host, their own susceptibility, their own terrain, and how that even influences the evolution of, you know, you know, those pathogens, those viruses when they spread. Mm-hmm. But you know, so this again, going back to the spike protein, which, you know, has been shown to, you know, have inflammatory, you know, generate inflammation. And part of the concern is, as we mentioned before, that we have those ACE2 receptors in the heart, uh, you know, this above, you know, you know, average incidence of myocarditis, you know, heart inflammation that can be caused by, it. um, if you go to, you know, open VARS. So, um, you know, this kind of ties back into the the history of vaccines, but, you know, during the, you know, the previous, you know, the 1918, you know, influenza epidemic, which is oftentimes kind of used and cited as a reason for the need for certain types of health policies, but there had been a very, you know, heavily financed widespread vaccination campaign, and that still was ineffective. You know, in fact, um, you know, within the U.S. military, you know, that's where we saw the largest outbreaks within these fully vaccinated populations. Mm. Now, unlike, again, you know, we've, we've had recent outbreaks on, you know, U.S. naval ships in a fully vaccinated population, you know, in Cape Cod, you know, these cluster outbreaks are showing 74% of those who are, you know, coming down, you know, with these various variants, you know, have been fully vaccinated. So, you know, this, This comes to show that there's no free lunch, you know, in life and in nature. And you don't get this, you know, one size fits all. I can only do immunological good and I cannot do immunological harm. But meanwhile, let's change the laws to prevent us from ever being able to have any type of financial or legal liability for harms caused by our product. Um, and it was because of the increase in lawsuits predominantly around the influenza, um, you know, vaccines. So, I mean, with amongst the different vaccines that we have, our childhood vaccination schedule, adult vaccines, you know, different ones seem to have higher incidence of adverse effect. So, you know, we, we also want to make clear for people that are concerned, you know, that like, okay, you know, you get a vaccine, it does not mean, oh, you're going to get autism. I mean, if, if that were the case, we, we would see, you know, if, if severe adverse events were the norm, you know, we would see that more widespread across the population. But that does not mm-hmm. diminish the reality of the fact that even if, you know, vaccine adverse events are a minority, we can't just accept it and be like, well, the, the cost is benefit, you know, cost benefit ratio, you know, for, for the greater good type thing, you know, we have to still look out for, each individual. And if someone is at, you know, again, potential higher risk or, you know, knows their own health, knows their own health susceptibilities, uh, we should be, you know, weary about, we should definitely respect the fact that again, you know, not every treatment, not every strategy is meant for everyone. You know, you want to look at again, who are the highest risk people. Now, again, when it came, going back to, you know, the issues with kind of adverse events, The, you know, prior to, you know, the release of the COVID vaccinations, the vast majority of, you know, the, you know, vaccine adverse events reporting system, Uh uh, which was again established in 1986, after essentially the vaccine industry,
0: which is the year I born, which is crazy.
1: Yeah, (laughs) had essentially, you know, because of the number of lawsuits that were coming regarding, Uh you know, injury from, you know, influenza epidemic from influenza vaccines. Um, As well as, again, a history of issues with, you know, polio vaccines that had been tainted, such as the cutter incident uh, took place in 1958, in which, again, uh, you know, over 700,000 individuals got infected, you know, with polio, you know, some of them got, you know, severe polio and some of them, you know, died. And again, it's it's worth noting that when you look at this instance of, okay, something that's botched where you've literally injected live polio into this whole population it's not that the whole population turned into cripples, you know, this is literally what you have is again, you know, a spectrum with any type of disease. And there's a number of predispositions. Some of those are genetic inherited and some of them are, you know, and a large amount of those are environmental. Mm -hmm. And this is where the field of epigenetics, you know, outside of genetics is very critical when we're, you know, addressing and dealing with health. Because again, some people have certain genetic susceptibilities uh, such as, you know, certain, um, you know, variations in their own genes that might make their genes work not as well, unless you support their, you know, environment, you know, right through, again, you know, appropriate, you know, diet, you know, of course, being a cornerstone, you know, nutrition as the foundation of it. But of course, it goes beyond that.
0: It's kind of like that whole like genetics load the gun and your lifestyle pulls the trigger, right? But knowing about your different genetic SNPs, Mm -hmm. you know, your single nucleotide polymorphisms, Mm -hmm. your SNPs, it's kind of like, I just had this realization, it's kind of like learning more about your gun you know and mm-hmm. how does it work and kind of like getting to know and all. Oh, let me learn the safety yeah i mean there's, there's me this, this one this to have a jamming this, issue this with this ammo this, yeah, yeah yeah
1: i yeah, mean it's yeah. like you know does that so if it has a jamming issue with a certain ammo i mean do you say ah oh, well it's completely ineffective you know piece yep. of junk. no it's like you have yeah. to there's there's nuance with everything you know yep. and again yep. you know you, you can't have you know complete absolutism or extremism but You know, people have a right to, again, to be informed in making their choices. And if those choices end up not being the direction you want, it's like you have to respect, you know, human freedom at the end of the day. You know, it's one thing if you know you are HIV positive and you go around knowingly infecting people. You know, that's that's something where, again, you know, there's clear exposure, risk exposure. There's a clear issue of intent and knowledge in in doing something. Versus, you know, you are somehow a mass murderer if you do not comply with these, you know, health, you know, dictates that may oftentimes have dubious evidence at best in terms Mm -hmm. of their overall efficacy. Whereas, again, you know, when one looks at what has been the overall theme of what can be done in terms of, you know, prevention and treatment, you know, of this, we find that again, it's, it's been very one note exclusively first, you know, lock up, mask up, stay inside. Uh, don't talk to anyone. Don't go anywhere just until, first of all, hospitals aren't overwhelmed and that just kind of continued and extended Mm. and, you know, and then wait for the vaccine. And then the vaccine comes out and people are getting it, but maybe not with the enthusiasm that was initially anticipated. And so you, you have, you know, billions in, you know, taxpayer subsidized, you know, government approved spending, you know, for, you know, you know, rollout for the purchase of it, for the marketing, you know, for targeting disinformation campaigns. And, you know, and despite all that, it's like, you know, we, we started to see, you know, again, at the beginning, you know, early on in the year, that what happened with, you know, our overall infection rates as we started to see a drop in cases. And, Before we even had any significant degree of vaccination within the population, what we had is basically nature taking its course. Uh, Dr. Zach Bush, he talks about, you know, coronaviruses, their seasonality and how they typically tend to, you know, come around and last in these two year cycles. And last year was basically telling and predicting to everyone before the vaccines had even been, you know, fully rolled out for distribution that. We're going to see a dip come springtime, you know, shortly after, you know, some of these vaccines come out. And, you know, this is just naturally expected because by this point in time, you have the acquisition of what's known as herd immunity, natural herd
0: immunity. Wow. What a concept.
1: (laughs) Well, that's, that's where the original concept, you know, comes from, you know, that, you know, herd immunity does not, you know, state that you will not have illness or disease that that's not how it works it's never Mm -hmm. been how it's worked you know Mm -hmm. and and i think any kind of belief that we can eliminate you know pathogens and and illness is based in ignorance and hubris the the fact is you know nature has its course you know we can do our best to kind of respond to that with the tools that we have but you know when that pathogen is going to come it's going to come but it's going to follow certain rules. You know, if something wants to continue spreading in a population, you, you know, and of course it's not in talking about like there's a consciousness, but right. simply that if you have a pathogen that's far more virulent, you know, far more dangerous, it's going to tend to burn itself out of the population a lot faster versus if it tends to be generally speaking, you know, less fatal, you know, less virulent Uh, in which case it is able to continue and persist and that genetic material is able to kind of stay around. Mm -hmm. And so when looking at, again, you know, risk factors, who has been at highest risk, because there are definitely populations who are at higher risk from severe outcomes, including death from this. That includes people, you know, 65 and older people with a history uh, with kidney injury, you know, people with any type of, you know, heart disease, cardiomyopathy, uh, you know, so, you know, as well as people with, you know, four or more, you know, comorbidities such as diabetes, high blood pressure. Uh, and whatnot. So Mm -hmm. we we know what these risk factors are. What about a
0: compromised immune function in any way?
1: Well, immune compromise can definitely be a risk factor for, you know, any type of disease. But again, it, it definitely varies from individual to individual and disease to disease. You know, are we talking about somebody that has you know, autoimmune disease, are we talking about somebody that's unimmune suppressive because of organ transplant? You know, yes, there there is, there's always a potential risk for infection and disease. However, if we look at, okay, you know, where the the issues have been and the concerns have been around, you know, you know, COVID-19, part Mm. of that has to do with what's kind of considered to be an exaggerated immune response or cytokine storm, right? So, and some people are immune deficient, sometimes, you know, certain, you know, diseases may not necessarily manifest in a more severe form because their immune function has been tamped down. So Mm -hmm. when they get ill, they're not going to tend to have a fever, you know, so you have to, you know, be a bit more, you know, cautious, especially when it comes to, you know, certain, you know, bacterial infections and whatnot. And, uh, and if someone, you know, is, you know, has, is immune compromised again, it's for them to kind of determine you know, whether that risk is worth it or not. Uh, We talked Mm -hmm. about those polymorphisms earlier, uh, you know, and one of the main ones is that MTHFR, methyl tetrahydrofolate reductase, which plays an important role in the recycling of uh, methyl groups and methylation, which is very critical in epigenetics in terms of uh, influencing, you know, the silencing of various genes. And so You want certain genes to be turned on and certain genes like, you know, proto-oncogenes that result in excessive cell growth to kind of be turned off. And this plays an important role also in our detoxification pathways. And so those that may have a, you know, a, you know, MTHFR SNP may have issues detoxifying from certain things. And so they may have more of a risk to, you know, certain, uh, you know, vaccine excipients. And excipients are basically these Uh, components that are not the actual antigen, the immune component, but Mm -hmm. are meant to kind of essentially either help preserve or help stimulate that immune response. And that can be anything from the use of uh, Mm -hmm. aluminum adjuvant or the use of Mm -hmm. polysorbates, polyethylene glycol, uh, which are, again, these kind of complex, you know, these sugar complexes that can be used as emulsifiers, um, but also Mm. have an impact on, you know, triggering this immune response. And, you know, everyone tends to be a little bit different, but in certain susceptible populations, those adjuvants can increase, you know, that likelihood of developing autoimmune disease. So autoimmune disease is now where your body's immune system either had a viral infection um, or some other type of infection, or you may have had an issue with you know, um, you know, gut dysbiosis. So you have leaky gut and you have these kind of, again, proteins, you know, from your food that then trigger this type of immune response. And some of these proteins, you know, such as, you know, casein from dairy or, you know, Mm -hmm. you know, your gluten, gliadin from Mm -hmm. wheat can have similar types of, you know, structures molecularly to some of our own, you know, bodies. Uh, cells. And so right. when you have some of these similar types of uh, molecular mimicry, right? Exactly. Molecular mimicry, this can potentially trigger, you know, an autoimmune response. And so, mm-hmm. you know, there's, you know, phenomenon known as Asia, you know, autoimmune, uh, um, you know, syndrome induced by adjuvants, you know, that's described oh. by Dr. Yehuda Schoenfeld, who's you know, considered kind of one of the modern fathers of, you know, autoimmune disease. Wow. And so th- there's, there's numerous studies that already looks at and recognizes that, you know, this is a potential, you know, phenomenon, but again, you know, everyone has their own unique disposition. So it's not that every single person who gets a vaccine is necessarily going to get an autoimmune disease. Right. But, you know, when you have a, you know, massive uptick, you know, in autoimmune disease rates, you know, we have to look at, okay, what is changing? Okay. So how much do genetics change in one, two or three generations? You know, Not very much versus the environment that can undergo a lot of, you know, Mm -hmm. changes and that can include, you know, when you, you know, again, when you're giving that injection, you know, you're causing that localized inflammation response, you know, but that also triggers, you know, a full on, you know, systemic body response. And, you know, sometimes the body is effectively able to clear that. Other times it's not, and Mm -hmm. it's, it's a cumulative thing. It's, it's like that, you know, straw that breaks the camel's back, you know, Uh, especially in
0: young to developing children. Right. I mean,
1: absolutely. And, and a big part of that has to do with, again, you know, that gut health that we talked about, you know, your own microbiome. And so, you know, in autistic, you know, children, we see, for example, that they have much less diversity Mm -hmm. in their microbiome In people who, you know, live in, you know, secluded, you know, types of, you know, hunter-gatherer societies, they have this, you know, massively diverse, you know, microbiome because of, you know, that ancestral diet that they have. And so, you know, one of the key critical things, and when even talking about the polio epidemic, you know, people were, you know, drinking Coca-Cola left and right and, you know, eating, you know, candies because these were, you know, the chocolate bar, Coke, all these things were relative kind of, you know, innovations towards the human diet, you know, where... never before in history had humanity received such a high concentrated dose of, you know, calories, but oftentimes without, you know, the actual nutrients we need to assimilate. And as again, we started to change our processes for food production from, you know, taking, you know, whole wheat, which has, you know, the germ in it that's full of vitamin E, you know, grinding that down using, you know, your, naturally occurring, you know, yeast and bacteria to create a sourdough fermentation that breaks down some of those, you know, gluten proteins to make them more digestible Mm -hmm. and make, you know, some of the anti-nutrients, you know, um, you know, more easily digestible and some of the, you know, nutrients stored within more bioavailable, we basically kind of took an expedited route where it's like, okay, we're just going to take the inner part of the grain, you know, that's your starch and we're going to fortify it with, minerals, you know, and not all minerals and vitamins are equivalent, you know, the ones right. that are in plants naturally that are in your body are going to be different from some of these cheaper synthetic forms. So there's a yep. difference between folic acid that's added, you know, it's a to enrich it versus methyl tetrahydrofolate, the active mm-hmm. form of folate that's, you know, um, used in your body, mm-hmm. just as there's a difference between cyanocobalamin, you know, the, you know, cheaper. Synth- you know, synthetic D vitamin that's available
0: and yep. methylcobalamin, yep. which is the active form that your body is using. Yep. Yep, exactly. Well said, man. Um, so you talked about a lot of different good topics in there. Uh, the excipients, did you, uh, did you talk about the retroviruses and, and, and DNA that, that happened to be in some vaccines?
1: So th- this again goes into issues of, you know, idealism and then the realities of quality control. So it's yep. like to a lot of people, you know, when you just theoretically understand like, okay, we're taking a virus, a harmless virus, you know, relatively speaking. Uh, and again, everyone is different because it can be a relatively harmless virus. It's not meant to infect people, but you have the right conditions and surprise people get infected. You know, we, we mm-hmm. see this all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, um, However, you know, one of the concerns, you know, around, you know, vaccines. So we mentioned the, you know, Vaccine Injury Compensation Act and National Vaccine Injury Act, you know. So basically the, you know, the conditions and stipulations of this were that, okay, you know, we don't want to, you know, risk not having access to vaccines. And so, you know, we're not going to allow, you know, individual lawsuits, you know, against, you know, these companies or liability for that. And there's this government-created program, taxpayer, you know, subsidized. That's you know, already paid out over four and a half billion, uh, you know, mm-hmm. to date. Uh, I heard it's up to
0: five to, billion now.
1: Uh, it, quite possibly. Again, you know, yeah. the, the numbers are shifting. The same thing with the VAERS numbers. Yeah. Every day, those numbers are going up. And again, you know, the it's it's a voluntary reporting system, but it's a system that people are generally not aware of. They did not teach it when I was in medical school, they did not Mm -hmm. teach you about how to identify potential vaccine injury. It was not a thing, you know, it Mm -hmm. was the first day of, you know, one of the microbiology classes It's like, okay, first things first, vaccines do not cause autism. And just like to me, I'm like, okay. Uh I mean, you could have started with a different opening, you know, one that just kind (laughs) of starts with the basics, the foundations work (laughs) up to that, you know, but again, you know, it's just, it's so again, you know, so one of the things of concern is, Okay. How can we, we need to, one of the issues is when you now remove that liability, that incentive for, you know, kind of accountability for your products, you then start to have an incentivization potentially for the cutting of corners when it comes to safety. And part of that has to do with, okay, other, you know, the excipients that we talked about themselves, the Mm -hmm. issues with aluminum and how that can, you know, tends to get traffic towards the brain. Uh, tends to be associated with, you know, neurodevelopmental uh, issues. Yep. And again, you know, our bodies, you know, you know uses, use and have, you know, need in very trace amounts some of these heavy metals. But not when you start talking about injecting them at levels that are far, far above the EPA safety levels. Yep. for it being present in drinking water and again you know when we're talking about studies about mercury or aluminum you know or any type of studies we're doing comparison so we need to compare apples to apples oranges to oranges you know mm-hmm. there's a difference in bioavailability with something that is orally ingested yep. versus something yep. that is injected you know intramuscularly or
0: intravenously you know right and then it can, can go past the blood brain barrier often right and then well boom. yeah
1: not only that it's like you know you eat you know some tuna that has mercury in it you're only going to absorb a small amount of that actual methylmercury. Right. Because again, your body will absorb some, you know, it gets caught up in the stools, you know, dietary, you know, habits such as increase in fiber will help to kind of lock out a lot of different, you know, toxins, you know, and heavy metals. So there's a number of things that can kind of modify that whole experience and kind of like, even for example, the differences in cannabis between, you know, you know, the oral route edible versus, you know you know, uh, inhalational route, the doses that might be needed to be achieved relatively speaking, you know, right. uh, you know, to, to get the therapeutic effect in an inhaled, you know, uh, or injected route for a drug versus, you know, an oral route. So, um, uh, with one of the, you know, issues is, you know, that, you know, many of the vaccines that were of the polio vaccines, uh, you know, the 1950s, Uh, were contaminated with what was known as the SV40, uh, you know, uh, virus, which is a monkey virus uh, that essentially has the capacity to generate tumors. It's a carcinogenic type of virus that normally does not infect humans, but it was, you know, as a result of the process, again, of, you know, making the vaccine. So it's like you, again, you will oftentimes take your pathogen of interest. You may go ahead and use a different animal In order to, again, because once that virus gets reassembled in that animal tissue, it's now has different structural proteins. So it's it's, it's a different animal altogether, that new Mm -hmm, virus. And so, mm -hmm. again, the thought process being that, okay, we we take, you know, these, uh, you know, kind of weakened type of viruses. We can, you know, still have certain aspects of it that, okay, the immune system can recognize as pathogenic and generate antibodies to but not necessarily get the full on disease that may be the case, but you may also get different diseases that you did not know about. Okay. So, huh. uh, you know, for example, you know, one of the issues with, you know, you know, measles, it's like, okay, measles in the vast majority of children is going to be, you know, cough, you know, runny nose, uh, conjunctivitis, and then you develop that rash and mm-hmm. the vast majority they are going to be sick for, you know, a week or so and they get better. There will yep. definitely be some that get more severe pneumonias and, you know, some that can have some very severe type of adverse events. Yep. But usually, again, when one goes through this in childhood, uh, it, it seems to have a sort of immune boosting effect, you know, uh-huh. later on in life when it comes to you know, potentially with certain cancers and whatnot. Uh, however, when we start to kind of shift, if you would, the natural trajectory of childhood illnesses, we often st- start to, you know delay them or people start to get exposed to these or susceptible to them at different points in their life when they're yep. well, like you know, developmentally right? and mm-hmm. exactly biologically different. And, you know, again, I had the chicken pox, you know, it's same with same me, you, you scratch and whatnot. And it was like, whatever, people get the chicken pox, they scratch, and then you don't get the chicken pox again. But yep. all of a sudden, you know, it, it, the, the marketing of kind of the worst case scenario of what chicken pox looks like, which again, no yep. one is saying that these diseases can't be fatal, you of know, course. but, you know, when, you know, these diseases have an overall, you know, 95 to 99, you know, plus percent, you know, survival rate, you know, it, it, there isn't necessarily a cause for alarm, you know, yep. if there yep. is a population that is particularly vulnerable, okay, if you want to use your preventive strategies in that back, you know, in that population, absolutely. But again, there, there can be a number of issues that come about from, you know, from this. So you can have the contaminants with that. There's also mm. other types of retroviruses, uh, doctor, Dr. Judy Mikovits, you know, his research has mm. been into what's known as XMRV, you know, xenotrophic murine, uh, uh, retrovirus. So this is a, a mouse retrovirus that again has been associated with, uh, you know, neurological issues, because again, uh, if you think about it, how are some of these viruses attenuated? Okay. By growing it in mouse neural tissue. And so, mm. You know, there are atypical forms of measles, such as, you know, SSPE, you know, subsclerosis and panencephalitis Mm -hmm. that can be caused if people are getting measles, you know, at a later age, you know, uh, you know, in adolescence versus in childhood um, and can potentially, you know, be a result of the kind of the live vaccine measles strain. Again, Mm -hmm. this is not saying that anyone and everyone's going to get this because you got it. Yeah. But it is saying that, yes, we do you, 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 maybe trade off one risk, you know, but you have another to deal with it. And so yeah, yeah. traditionally speaking, okay, how do you deal with, you know, measles, you know, vitamin A, you know, that was something that I was fortunate that one of the, you know, physician, you know, review courses that, you know, I was using back the time, you know, the way this physician broke, you know, broke it down, he started off by trying to understand all disease processes in terms of energy and low energy state and explaining uh, when you're in a low energy state, these are the signs and symptoms you're going to have. Yeah. And so it's like, these are the parts of the body that require the most energy and mm-hmm. hence, you know, your brain, your heart, your kidneys. These are the ones that are most likely to be, you know, targeted when you have, you know, any type of you know, abnormalities. And so, yeah. you know, yeah. in addition to knowing that, you know, he also focused on what are the roles of key, you know, vitamins in the body. Okay. You know, and, Yep. You know, th- yep. these vitamins, again, play critical roles, you know, as, uh, a- as catalysts, you know, as cofactors, you know, in numerous reactions throughout the body. So, Absolutely, uh, you know, in the case of vitamin A, vitamin A, you know, retinol plays an important role in terms of the specialization of various cells. So the specialized epithelium with cilia, you know, that line, you know, your trachea and lungs, you know, the specialized epithelium on your eyes, you know, the specialized Uh epithelium, you know, in your gut and throat. And so Uh anytime you have any type of viral infection, you know, what you're going to have happen is, you know, those viruses as they're going into and out of your cells, busting out, you know, that that creates damage and you have cellular turnover. So you need to be able to support the body. Okay. And in a nutritionally sound way, one that's going to emphasize protein and not sugar, you know, and one that's going to emphasize those key vitamins that are important to, you know, immune functioning and immune signaling. And vitamin A is one of those critical ones. And uh, interestingly enough, um, in a lot of the African vaccine campaigns, they've been, you know, a lot of their success has come from the co-administration of vitamin A along with the measles vaccine and so you know it's just be interesting to kind of do a compare like if you want to do a comparison but again this is where the debates on ethics come out where if the the logic already states that you know we have a treatment or prevention that is you know effective that it would be unethical to deprive you know someone you know of said treatment but uh, again you know it's you know when when understanding you know much of how again, science tends to work, how much, you know, financial influence as well as conflict of interest that occurs between say, you know, the regulatory agencies, CDC and FDA mm-hmm. and the pharmaceutical industry themselves. So, yeah. you know, for example, the CDC, you know, in addition to licensing and owning the patents on, you know, over, you know, 30 vaccines is also, you know, uh, yeah. um, yeah. Stockpiles and purchases over, you know, half of the vaccines in this country that they then, of course, you know, sell to different hospital systems throughout the country.
0: Wow! So they're not so uh, as unbiased as people might think. Oh, it's well, a you know, and, government. And then, of
1: course, you know, when we, we we talk about the FDA, you know, once upon yeah. a time again, when you know, the food, you know, safety commission that eventually became the FDA was first mm-hmm. commission. It was at a time, you know, um, you know, in the early 1900s where again, you know, people were, you know, adding all kinds of chemical junk into food, the food supply, literally Mm -hmm. adding poison in order to make it look more appealing. And so this, that, you know, this, this was put in place to, you know, protect the public safety and make sure that your food is just food. Right. What we've seen over the last few decades is a role that of the FDA as, you know, a gatekeeper for, you know, the industry in a way that, it, you know, basically works in the favor of industry where it is, you know, financially beneficial towards the FDA, you know, um, and there's, there's been a number of different, you know, scandals within that one of which, you know, involves, you know, um, the, you know, RBST recombinant, you know, bovine somatotropin, or, you know, the, um, you know, artificial growth hormone that, you know, genetically modified, um, growth hormone that was approved for by the FDA, for use in cattle, uh, during the nineties in order to boost milk production. Oh yeah. And, you know, the, the whole kind of approval process was, was very kind of shaky at best, but it, it's very interesting that no, you know, farmers who use, okay, this and add, you know, you know, give their cows this, you know, recombinant growth hormone, mm-hmm. they do not have to list on that, that they use their, that in their milk. However, if a farmer wants to state that they do not use recombinant growth hormone for their cows, they have to put an FDA disclaimer on their milk that the FDA, you know, has determined no nutritional difference between milk with or without RBST. Wow. You know, so it's kind of like, you know, that's almost kind of like for those who are still, you know, milk drinkers, you know, you're, 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 you're kind of first safety seal. All right, no RBST. Okay, we've cleared one one potential hurdle of stuff we don't really want in, in our milk, but again, the type of dairy and how, again, you know, when you feed cows, you know, tremendous amounts of glyphosate, you know, sprayed, yeah. you know, GMO corn, corn and soy, what do you think? They're exactly. Gonna, yeah. I yeah. mean, you know, that's, that's getting into their diet. The fatty acid profile is yep. shifting from that higher omega three fatty acid profile, CLA towards the more omega six inflammatory, you know, arachidonic acid, you know, fatty acid profile, Uh, you also have to consider the antibiotics that are used. And again, Mm -hmm. the vast majority of antibiotics used in this country are used in agriculture, you know, partly for disease prevention and treatment, because you have horrible conditions for health Mm -hmm. for these animals. And, you know, partly in, in many cases, often because there seems to be a sort of uh, an improve an increase in growth in these animals that kind yeah. of like increases your amount of total pounds sold of yep. you know of, of animal and so,
0: yep. Yep. Uh, so so you have this so, this kind of, mm-hmm. so here's the thing Kareem I want to I know we're mindful of time and everything and I want to oh, get uh, into some some topics here conspiracy theories right and I want to just preface it by this Jeffrey Epstein having a pedophile island that he took all his you know friends to and stuff that used to be a huge conspiracy theory a few years ago, right? You thought mm-hmm. you people thought you're crazy to talk about that. And then a Netflix special came out on it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's just like have an open mind when you listen to this that's coming up here, because the you know, the truth always comes out. And some people really fight for that, including Andrew Wakefield, which is the first guy that I knew you wanted to talk about
1: yeah uh wakefield it's interesting to note. you know this is a very malign individual and i actually had the opportunity to actually meet with and speak with dr wakefield um at the at the screening of you know vax and you know i met the late dr tony bark um you know amongst others while i was there and if you i actually had to do a lot of scouring just to find the original retracted paper you know and It's very interesting that the other, you know, co-author, you know, was, you know, exonerated by the British court. You know, uh, Dr. John Walker Smith won his appeal against their, you know, regulatory board because, again, Mm. Wakefield initially, you know, basically within his actual, um, you know, statement had basically – it was not – he never, ever said – Vaccines cause autism. MMR vaccine causes autism. He is a gastroenterologist, okay, who was again looking at you know, you know, uh, basically you know, uh, you know, looking at endoscopies for uh-huh. you know these patients that had autism that their parents had told them. They developed this autism, you know, shortly after receiving their MMR shot. So this was the parents that were suggesting that. Right. And what he simply did was he basically, you know, as a gastroenterologist, you know, he took samples, you know, from the terminal ileum. He saw that in the small intestine, there was this, you know, hyperplasia, you know, this, these, the growth of these kind of nodules. He noticed that there were, you know, differences in, you know, you know, elevated MMA methylmalonic acid, which again is, you know, going to be a sort of. a a toxic byproduct of, you know, poor, you know, um, you know, uh, methylation metabolism, especially B12. And he talks about functional B12 deficiency Uh and, you know, in it, he simply states that, you know, there, um, could be again, a, um, you know, that there is basically a strong a, link. <laughs> not No, he did not even say a a strong link at all. Um, okay. You know, he basically said that there was no causal link found between autisms. Okay. However, it may be worth investigating if the MMR, you know, vaccine was responsible. So he never said mm. that there was a causal link. You know, he simply mentioned that because of the fact that the timing of onset, because, you know, someone, you know, This is a small subset of patients. He wasn't claiming this is the gold standard. This is the the proof that causes autism. But because of the controversy that it generated, which, again, he theorized by the fact that, you know, some of the patients who've had the single, you know, measles vaccination did not, you know, seem to have, you know, issues until they got the actual full MMR. And then they, you know, shortly after started to develop these symptoms. And and so Mm. it's important to know what the actual study says. But, you know, already, like, you know, the whole Wakefield and debunking of Wakefield has kind of been the, the entire kind of central premise of quote unquote, countering the, you know, the vaccine, you know, the anti-vaxxus information, movement, right. you know, and, and it's important to say, okay, what did it actually say? So it's like, okay, maybe his conclusion is let's investigate this. There might be a link, you know, why, you know, destroy his career, this and that, you know, if there is an issue, you know, we should hopefully try to get to the bottom of the safety. And one of the things again about the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program, mm. part of you know the congressional requirements, is that they would basically you know do safety surveillance. They would they would have to you know basically you know come up with okay if there are safety issues, what they're doing to remedy it as you know as conditions of the plan. Well, we used the Freedom Information uh, Freedom Information Act request to say okay, where is that? What has been the the data? showed that nothing had been done over the last 30 years. And so it's it's like, mm-hmm. if you want to gain the public trust, you don't do it in a way by attacking them, by maligning them, by forcing them, by badgering, cajoling, and ridiculing them, you know, by yeah. force if necessary to get something, You know, cutting them off from any sort of recourse or anything happen, and completely turning a blind eye to when something does happen, and not attempting to kind of find some sort of recourse you know the, the yeah. fact is extremist positions in any type of arena in any type of dogma will naturally trigger extremist rebuttal from the other end that this is the this has always been the nature of things and so right. you know i'm not saying that you know i'm necessarily like walking the middle path but you know we, we, we can't begin to to honestly really be talking about being you know, just towards, you know, science, if we're not actually, you know, being open to looking at all the data that includes the AERS data, which, again, you know, BMG, you know, sorry, a, you know, Harvard study, you know, I looked at, you know, you know, the ARS system, and, you know, estimated, you know, underreporting, you know, of that, you know, system at least 10 volts. So, Just going on the numbers that we have right now, you know, we we already have a significant number of, you know, potential deaths, you know, and hospitalizations, you know, due to, you know, the COVID, you know, vaccine Uh, over, you know, 500,000, you know, vaccine adverse events reports just on the COVID vaccine, you know, 1.3 million VARS reports on all vaccines since the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program started so we're already approaching half half of all the vaccine injuries in the last 30 plus years in a matter of months and again when we talk about how money can influence things and whatnot you know pfizer reported earlier this year that they had you know off of their singular vaccine had made, you know, three and a half billion in sales in the first quarter alone. <laughs> and they've now recently, you know, uh, adjusted their projections with, of course, an expected price increase, which will be subsidized by the taxpayer to basically be, uh, to have a total earnings of 33 billion this year
0: on one wow. product, you know.
1: So, wow, man. You uh, know, uh, that's it,
0: not a little bit obvious that that's just like a little bit. Excessive, it, it, then I don't know what else to say, right? It's like,
1: <laughs> it, it, it's it's about again, you know, conflict of interest, and yeah, if we yeah. see again that that revolving door between regulatory agencies, there's yeah. there's massive conflict of interest. So you know, one yeah. of the studies that you know supposedly had disproved and settled the science on, <laughs> you know, the whole you know thimerosal and issues with that, right. uh, potentially right. causing autism. Um, you know, or, you know, causing an inner inflammation that can potentially lead to autism was, you know, this, you know, Verstraten, uh, study that basically, um, you know, after they basically went through, paired the data to finally say that, well, no causal link has been found or disproven more data needs to be done when initially it was showing that there was this increase, um, in risk of, uh, you know, based on the data. Right. And, you know, um, a- as such, uh, you know, because of this, it's like, people are like, okay, it's been settled. But then versus went on to, you know, join, um, you know, the board of, uh, I believe I was GlaxoSmithKline, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, meanwhile, it's like, you know, you had the, you know, the, another CDC study that had been published, uh, you know, the one that, you know, Dr. Uh, uh, William Thompson, you know, basically was a whistleblower for, yeah. uh, to Dr. Brian Hooker talking about, again, that increased incidence of autism, um, in African-American males, a threefold increase. in those who were, you know, under two years of age mm-hmm. and how basically the CDC in meetings told them to destroy, you know, that data, because again, it just, it didn't look right. It didn't, it didn't match up what they wanted, but he held onto those copies and was able to release those through Freedom of Information Act by Dr. Brian Hooker. And so, hmm. you know, that that, you know, from that, okay, Dr. Julie Guberding was the one who was, you know, uh, you know, head of the CDC at the time, ended up, after this study was published, ended up leaving to join as vice president of Merck's vaccine division. Uh, Paul Thorson, wow. who was also one of the co-authors of the study, the, the, the main uh, studies, you know basically fled to Denmark as an FBI fugitive for embezzling millions in government funding that was supposed to be used for the study. Uh, So it's like, you know, when you have an entire kind of criminal cast, it's not unreasonable to, to ask for further verification. (laughs) And when you
0: got the medical mafia in in charge of things, like, come on,
1: (laughs) regardless. I mean, you know, and and then furthermore, like I said, you know, um, (laughs) you know, talking about, you know, what are some of the different things, you know, that, okay, so, you know, we've talked a little bit about immunology, we've talked a little bit about, okay, some of the issues that can occur with vaccines, some of the ways that, Mm, you mm. know, this, you know, this spike protein is unique and can, you know, cause some potential damage. Um, But, you know, we've, uh, you know, also, you know, have to, you know, kind of temper that with, uh, okay, so what can we do? And, you know, wow. I think one of the things, you know, it's, it's important for people to understand is, you know, your, your likelihood, your, your outcomes in anything are going to definitely be, you know, grounded in your mindset around it. You know, the more fear you have, the more yeah. cortisol you have spiking, the less your lymphocytes work against viruses, you know? So, I mean, it's. It's important to, like I said, you know, use, you know, sound judgment, appropriate caution, especially around people who are clearly infected or highly infectious or higher risk, you know, but you'll never be able to pinpoint like, is he an asymptomatic carrier? Is he an asymptomatic carrier? Because that's a phenomenon you can also get from, you know, the vaccine where it's like, okay, you know, when looking at even the endpoints of the, you know, COVID vaccine efficacy, it was. it's looking at, okay, you know, the likelihood of having a severe, you know, case of it. It doesn't mean that you can't transmit it, you can't be an asymptomatic mm-hmm. transmitter, especially mm-hmm. with that antibody-dependent enhancement that we talked about earlier, uh, you know, but we would never discriminate against them, though it seems like we're kind of moving in that direction again as we're re-re-revise the mask, you know, uh, oh, you know man. masking
0: recommendations. Don't even get me uh, started on that whole thing. We including that. <laughs>
1: No, no, there isn't. There isn't. But, uh, you know, there, well, you there know are I wanted
0: def- to say this, man. What you're saying right here reminds me of this. I posted on my Instagram the other day. Thought virus of the day. This is by Dr. Brad Campbell. He posted it. I reposted it. There are tens of millions of viruses in just a square meter of air. And you were exposed to more viruses in your daily life than all of the stars in the entire universe. Good luck, (laughs) germaphobes. And and I said, you can't avoid viruses or bacteria. It's not the germ. It's your terrain. How well can your body and your immune system fight the germs? Depends how well you take care of your body, your mind and spirit. You know, and that's what you're talking about here. Creating the conditions for health, right? Like that's where it all starts.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And that's, you know, going to be the fundamental kind of terrain, you know, behind, you know, your strategy is that, again, you know, the reality is that even with, you know, people attempting to do the best they can with nutrition, you know, we have, you know, nutrient depleted, you know, food supply. And so many of these, you know, various, you know, micronutrients, you know, and minerals, you know, we need to basically be, you know, supplementing with, you know, and you know, at the top of the list, you know, is going to be, you know, our key minerals, um, zinc for one, uh, which again, you know, we talk about magnesium a lot and how that's responsible for, you know, supporting as a cofactor for, you know, 300, you know, enzymes in the body. Well, zinc, you know, is responsible for over several thousand, you know, (laughs) um, reactions in the body and is critical to, you know, our, um, immunity because, Um, it plays an important role in the integrity of our collagen as does vitamin C. And again, that's our innate immunity. So it's like, as these viruses, again, you know, are building, you know, you know, holes in your body in those barriers, you know, of your mucosa, it's like, you have to repair it. You have to give it the nutrients it needs to repair, you know? And, you know, this is where, again, you know, focusing, you know, on, you know, you know, higher, you know, quality, you know, protein, um, and especially in a certain amino acids, you know such as, you know, lysine uh, and arginine, which have again, you know, uh, you know, antiviral and immune supporting type of properties. We talked about vitamin A, and its Mm -hmm. role on the immune system and the rebuilding of those, um, you know, specialized cells, vitamin D, of course, also plays an important role in the modulation of inflammation throughout the body. And, Uh you know, consistently, you know, low vitamin D levels have been associated with more severe adverse outcomes when it comes to COVID, as well as a number of other chronic diseases. Oh, yeah. And the fact of the matter is, if you're spending your time indoors all day on a mm-hmm. screen, yep. you are making zero vitamin D. You're yep. not making it. Yep. Um, you know, most people aren't really getting, you know, very rich sources of vitamin D, which, you know, you can find in cod liver oil, um, you know, amongst uh, other things, but mm-hmm. you know, it's something that even Dr. Anthony Fauci himself takes. You know, is taking every day vitamin C and vitamin D. Speaking huh. the, the pandemic, I mean, he mentioned it on a private interview with Jennifer Garner. Never once was this public health strategy. And again, oh, you know, a lot a of shame, these. Man, that's a shame. A, a lot of these. Again, these these vitamins are extremely cheap. You know, again, yep. you know, if you're during the summertime you know yep. northern latitudes vitamin d is free stand yep. outside for a number of minutes your body has its entire process of being able to make it and not only do you get vitamin d but the sun in and of itself helps to activate all these different immune response you know components you know through all the different kind of wavelengths of its rays as well so there's benefit in it yep. but again you know you if you're darker skin you know, you need less sun protection than if you're lighter skin. It's just mm-hmm. knowing the right, you know, type of approach for, for each person. Um, right, exactly. You know, so uh, we talk about zinc. Selenium, of course, which is um, a very, uh, you know, critical, um, you know, micronutrient and mineral that's mm-hmm. responsible also for supporting our liver's detoxification and mm-hmm. especially the, bo- the liver and the body's main antioxidant glutathione. Right. And you know, w- one thing worth mentioning is, you know, glutathione, you know, people have been able to use that and have had success using f- with that for treating COVID, as well as its precursor that's given um, you know, to help regenerate glutathione, N acetylcysteine. Mm-hmm. And currently there are ongoing clinical trials on, you know, the use of N acetylcysteine for both prevention and treatment of COVID. And part of that seems to be with seems to be uh, on one of the latest studies on its impact on disrupting the ACE2, uh, you know, on how it interacts with the ACE2 receptor. And so, again, a lot of these, you know, nutrients, and again, you know, when we talk about, you know, inflammation, we talk about the worst case of COVID, that cytokine storm, you know, oftentimes, again, we do have drugs even that are exist that have their own potential benefits, such as steroids, methylprednisone, Mm -hmm. um, which is part of, you know, Um, a couple of protocols that, uh, that was developed one by a pharmacist in Flora, the ICAM protocol, Mm -hmm. um, which again, I stands for immune support first starting with vitamin C, C for the corticosteroids, a for anticoagulants, you know, using heparin, for example, because again, there's definitely an aspect about this virus that seems to be, uh, more likely to clot, induce clotting. And again, that's part of the issue with even the whole, you know, uh, you know, the Pfizer, you know, spike protein component. It ha- uses a component of hemoglobin, a component of another, uh, you know, um, you know, protein in order to get it into the body. And then the M-macrolide, uh, and then, of course, the, um, you know, the Math Plus, uh, you know, protocol uh, put together by, um, I believe, the uh, COVID, uh, you know, Frontline Critical Care Alliance, um,
0: Okay. Cool. Yeah. Uh, so what? So what else? What else on the treatment list uh, that you want to talk about that you really think is important to look okay. into? Okay. Um, yeah. So
1: there are a, a few things, and and one thing too worth mentioning. We talk about okay, what are things that people can potentially do when it comes to um, you know treatment? Is the earlier the treatment, the earlier the response, the better the outcome. You know, Mm -hmm. it's, it's the same thing, even with disease. It's like, if your innate immune system is up to par, your innate immune system will clear the pathogen before you ever, you know, get disease, you know, symptoms. If it's not up to par, then you can start to get, you know, an actual, you know, development of the disease, you know, increase in, you know, viral load, and then you have to kind of use the, you know, adaptive immune system to help kind of support that, but again, Mm -hmm any number of things can kind of skew that, that response, um, you know, towards healing. So, uh, so we talked about that, uh, you know, the, the use of, um, you know, vitamin C, but our vitamins are main, um, um, you know, antioxidants and, Mm -hmm. uh, to help kind of, again, prevent that cytokine storm. Right. Uh, but I, I'd, I'd be a little bit remiss if I, you know, didn't mention, you know, a strategy that's kind of been of interest to me from very early on. And that would be CBD cannabidiol, you know, uh-huh. which is again, a hemp derived cannabinoid. And, you know, it's very interesting. A number of studies were conducted one in Israel by, uh, you know, Canisole analytics, uh, that basically used CBD, uh, you know, CBD and a terpene complex, a terpene complex alone. And, you know, compared that to corticosteroids for, you know, basically tamping down of, you know, this, you know, massive cytokine storm, because it's like, it's not necessarily the virus that'll kill you. It's that exaggerated immune response Mm -hmm. that'll oftentimes be, you know, what kind of goes out of control. Now, vitamin C actually plays a role in stabilizing that by stabilizing mast cells that kind of generate that whole kind of, you know, histamine, leukotriene, um, you know, response, but, you know, uh-huh. CBD works through a number of different things. And again, when they compare, you know, um, you know, so with methylprednisone you had about a 20% reduction, you know, in, in, you know, the inflammatory, your pro-inflammatory cytokines, your IL-1, your TNF, wow. um, uh, with CBD, you had about a 70% reduction with wow. the, Terpenes, I think it was about an 80% production, if I'm not mistaken. And then CBD and terpenes, it was like a 90% reduction uh, <laughs> in that. So a, a phenomenal reduction, again, a, a testament to the entourage effect, as oh, wow. well as how, you know, the terpenes, which are the aromatic, you know, essential oil components of not only the cannabis plant, but like, you know, all plants and you know aromas that are produced, uh, you know, have a, a lot of different kinds of mechanisms that they work on. Um, and other studies have looked at how, you know, CBD works, again, also interacts with the ACE2 receptor to disrupt, you know, that, you know, that viral binding. Again, we, you know, when you change the shape slightly of these receptors or of the, you know, res- the binding proteins that can impact how well things will, you know, bind or be recognized, you know, as mm-hmm. mentioned before, how, you know, some coronaviruses and other viruses are able to you know, evade immune surveillance, you know, after, you know, binding, you know, by basically downregulating some of these, um, you know, these binding proteins. So, you know, CBD, but it's not the only botanical that's been studied. Um, Artemisia um, Mm -hmm. annua, which, uh, you know, again, in the same family as motherwort and wormwood um, has been studied uh, both in some indigenous use of, you know, COVID treatment in Madagascar, as well as some Chinese studies, um, you know, yeah. that looked at its efficacy, um, as, as well as a number of other kind of botanicals. So um, mm-hmm. also, when one thinks about, okay, definitely that we know that, okay, one of the risks of COVID is, you know, that clotting risk, which is a very real risk. And it's also a potential real risk that can come from, you know, the vaccination, because that spike protein itself is capable of generating that same inflammatory cascade that can lead to, you know, thrombosis and clotting. And you know, there's a number of different like, you know, medicinal foods and herbs, you know, all that, you know, have a number of kind of overlapping properties. So, you know, especially turmeric, ginger, and garlic, you know, all of these mm-hmm. have natural antiviral properties, yeah. they have natural anti-inflammatory properties, and they do also have some blood thinning properties to them as well. Mm-hmm. Now, with anything, you know, obviously, if you are on any type of serious medications, blood thinners, even if you want to get on, cvd or whatnot it's like you do want to make sure you have you know your healthcare practitioner at least kind of assess that monitor that because again anytime you add something to the mix that can change the dynamic of how fast your body clears something out sure. um, and can lead to higher you know potential drug levels so you know we, we want to definitely avoid the, you know those types of risks but in general you know when 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 these you know medicinal foods are consumed in therapeutic you know normal amounts, you know, we're not talking about like, you know, ounces of concentrated garlic or ginger extract, you know, they're, they're remarkably safe and have, you know, remarkably, you know, good tolerance in terms of effect profile. And so again, it's, it's a, it's a combined strategy with anything, you know, whether you choose to vaccinate or you choose not to vaccinate Mm -hmm. at the end of the day, you know, do you want to put all your eggs in one basket and do nothing for everything else? Um, so Right. Obviously, like we said, it goes back to first and foremost, foundations of health, you know, the, uh, as we talked about creating the conditions of health, making sure that your nutrition is proper, which again, I don't think this pandemic has favored that you're getting adequate exercise. Again, the closing of gyms and saunas to me is one of the dumbest public health strategies in human no, history, I, I um, agree. It, you know, adequate sleep, you know, uh, adequate stress reduction. I mean, these are the foundations of it, you know, adequate kind of mindset, you know, you go around thinking I'm going to die of this disease. It's like, you're, you're not helping your, your immune response in that regard. Um, You know, there's, there's no way to ever be able to guarantee or prevent that you, you can never get sick or will never get this disease or pathogen. Everyone's kind of cup is is always kind of filling and draining at a different point. And it could be, it takes, you know, everyone a little something different that may result in them, you know um, you know, actually becoming, you know, susceptible to disease. So we start with that. We start with again, you know, supporting, you know, the immune system with, you know, immune supporting nutrients, you know, give it things that we're generally not getting enough of from our diet, you know, definitely the more phytonutrients, plant-based nutrients, um, Mm -hmm. that you get into your diet, the better, you know, these different flavonoids such as quercetin, which is in onions and apples, you know, also has, uh, uh, effect on the, on, you know, viruses by, uh, basically, um, helping to drive zinc into the cells, similarly to how, you know, hydroxy, uh, chloroquine and some of these other, um, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, types of drugs uh, can, you know, help to, you know, disrupt viral replication. hmm hmm Like
0: ivermectin.
1: Yep. And again, a drug that's, you know, been extremely safe and is part of the these protocols, including the IMATH protocol. And, mm-hmm. you know, I'll definitely provide links um, for. Yeah. yeah I'll you know, put a bunch of links in the show notes. And we, we could pro- and... for some of the ones that where there's a possibly the links maybe broke, we could probably go ahead and, you know, upload those, you know, to a drive for people to be able to. Kind of download some of those at their own discretion, but we'll definitely provide the links for those that are there. Uh, yep. That, you know, again, including, uh, you know, one by the AAPS, American Association of Physicians and Surgeons, that, again, it's a very well put together protocol. It says, okay, you know, there, there are different aspects to dealing with this. You know, there's the initial kind of prevention containment thing, there's the early, you know, at home treatment, there's the early outpatient treatment, and then there's the you're in the hospital and now you need to be treated. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, the messaging signal we had is stay home until you have to go to the hospital, and nothing in between as to what can be done. And so, again, since a lot of you know these legacy drugs that have been around for a while. In most people, are safely tolerated when taken in the right doses, and when taken again as part of that proper protocol. You know, if you're not giving enough vitamin C, you're not going to see the vi- the benefits of vitamin C. Right. If you're not, you know, giving zinc, you know, with your zinc ionophore, you know, your hydroxychloroquine or quercetin, you're not going to see as much benefits. And yeah, you know, zinc yeah. is, is definitely one that you know probably one of the main ones to to go ahead and supplement. And you know, amongst the signs of clinical zinc deficiency are, you know, loss of, you know, sense of taste and smell, you know, because of, again, the importance of zinc and all of that. Um, Other vitamins, including thiamine, you know, um, and again, you know, ideally bioavailable sources of thiamine, you know, through whole foods, ideally, or, Mm. you know, more, you know, bioavailable supplement forms of thiamine, you know, such as, uh, you know, Lud or benthol thiamin, um, instead of, you know, typical ones would be, you know, a better strategy, potentially. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, man, I agree. Yeah, there's so much. Uh, there's so many other great things like IV nutrients, you know, IV vitamin C, which has been used in China, and even they were doing it in New York, I guess. So I don't know what happened with that. But it's a very effective strategy. I talked to some naturopathic doctors at the ANP in Phoenix. And they're like, Oh yeah, we've treated plenty of patients with IV and we didn't even need to get to that for most of them. It was just oh, no. normal treatments were just fine. Hydro and homeopathy and, uh, and nutrient you know, and just some water fasting and just rest and sleep. And, you know,
1: <laughs> Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Fasting again is a very, uh, very powerful modality. Yep. Um, you know, again, when you're, when your body is dealing with, you know, metabolically is dealing with, you know, infection and inflammation, the last thing you want to do is clog up the works by, yeah. you know, forcing, you know, your body to have to adapt to the stress of excessive carbohydrates, you know, yeah. insulin spikes and the resistance that that causes, you know, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, instead you want to, you know, focus on hydration, you know, because again, you know, water is what, you know, drives so much, many of our internal cellular processes. Oh, yeah. Um, and is, is definitely, you know, critical anytime, you know, you're, you're feeling, um, ill, but, you know, definitely, you know, you don't want to be, you know, sitting there, you know, you know, having an ice cream cone or whatnot saying, well, I'm sick. I'm at home. I mean, that, that's, a, that's probably like the worst thing you can do to your body, you know, dairy and gluten and sugar, you know, you're, you're just, you know, aching for your body to have a bad time. So, I mean, it's, and again, you know, traditionally like, oh, you're sick, drink seven up, which is, you know, corn syrup, water, you know, it's like, just (laughs) drink water, just drink water, you know, and broth, you know, because again, broths are going to be rich in those amino acids. That's why chicken
0: noodle soup is actually good for you, you know, but how about a real
1: Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, it was a mainstay for a while, but like, you know, now we have a little bit of scientific evidence like, oh, okay, here's a mechanism of how that's working. Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: But yeah, man. So, you know, I know you don't have too much more time, but we could just pretty much wrap it up. I just want to say something and then you could end it. Uh, But I just Mm -hmm. want to say that, you know, it's about what we're here to do is is to educate and then to Mm -hmm. help empower people to to do their own research and to dig into these things and become their own experts on on their own health of their own body. You know, like we're not the healers. We're just here to teach you and help you to kind of figure out and learn about your own inner healer um, which is in there. Um, and that's what we, you know, are all about. So, so yeah, I think that's what we're here to do. You know, we're not saying don't get vaccinated or get vaccinated. We're just saying, educate yourself. It's about informed consent. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, man, that's, I I appreciate you. This has been great. And yeah, please, please close it off here for us.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. You brought, you brought up some very, you know, valuable points. And I think, you know, on the, on the topic of experts, this in that, you know, it's like, um, you know, I, I don't consider myself, you know, an expert in this field per se. And, mm-hmm. and I think, you know, there's always there's always things, you know, we can learn from, you know, our peers, you know, and it's just but it, it, it requires a certain type of openness and a certain willingness to, you know, actually look at the data that's there rather than closing your eyes and closing off all channels For that to be communicated you know different doctors have different you know styles and you can still learn a lot from a lot of them but the ones that are more open-minded that look at different you know and are willing to try different strategies are the ones that are probably going to be more well-rounded and more successful than those that are kind of just limited themselves in terms of you know what they can do and you know again Mm -hmm. when looking at you know doctors recommending one treatment or another you know, um, or looking at industry, it's like with anything, look at, you know, who benefits, you know, what's, you know, what, what is the potential gain that, you know, a physician or group of physicians may have in recommending a drug that had been already approved and has been safety tested for decades, you know, or a vitamin or a mineral that your body needs versus a proprietary novel, you know, fiscally shielded, you know, product that is being marketed ad nauseum and which, you know, billions have been made and billions more have yet to be made, you know, it's again, you know, everyone has a right to 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 seek their own living and to be prosperous. And there's nothing wrong with that. But when you start seeing obscene amounts of money going around, you probably have obscene things going on behind that scenes. Mm, and so Yeah,
0: well said know, when you start seeing people going door to door. You know something's yeah. going on.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. I so, mean, it's, yeah, um,
0: yeah. Well, So beautiful. I mean, at the end of the
1: day, do you, you have to? You know, everyone at the end of the day, you know, you're responsible for your own health. You know, you have to take the strategy that you feel most comfortable with, and you also have to respect the strategies that others feel most comfortable with. You know, you're you're not mm-hmm. in their shoes. It's not for you to decide. Again, you know, somebody going around deliberately infecting people with HIV, that's not a, oh, that's just my personal strategy, okay? Somebody deciding that, you know, they don't want to be choked off, re-inhaling, you know, the inoculated, you know, microbes of that same piece of cloth that's been on the seat of their car, you know, for the last several weeks, you know, versus somebody else. It's like, okay, you know, you want to do your thing, do your thing, but it's like, you know... You are in no position to attack somebody for saying, I'm going to choose to use vitamins and minerals and all of these things that we do have evidence for. And I don't want to get this vaccine right now because we have no long-term data. And even if preliminary data may show that it is effective, you know, long-term data only comes down down the road. You know, it's like yeah. if you, you know, dodge a bullet just to get hit by a missile later, is that really, you know... Uh, is that really winning? And so, I mean, I think, you know, there's still a lot, the jury's still out there on a lot. There are some other vaccine, like one that's in development right now, the Novavax, that uses a different approach. It just uses the actual spike protein recombinant. And then it uses a, um, you know, uh, an adjuvant that is uh saponin based, you know, mm. and it, it's, you know, again, it has, you know, very high efficacy, about 90%, uh, you know, relatively low adverse effects you know but it avoids some of the concerns that comes with you know novel you know mRNA technology and what that means for us epigenetically
0: yeah yeah wow beautiful man well said i i uh, appreciate you and uh this is just the beginning i have a feeling there's uh there's some more episodes coming out of this some <laughs>
1: oh so, absolutely absolutely I, and we haven't even started our discussion on minor cannabinoids and their role so that's that's a yeah, few episodes we'll ago. leave
0: that for part two uh cream i think you might be the expert as far as i know in minor and rare cannabinoids so uh <laughs> <we'll laughs> yeah hey, i just discovered one
1: the other day so it's, it's always fun you know
0: <laughs> yeah man awesome well uh this was awesome i appreciate you man and uh, i'll see you real soon when i'm back in illinois Sounds good, man. My
1: pleasure, man. You take care. You too, bro. Thank you. All right.